Good morning. I was thinking about making a joke about like sort of the third holiday. People come to church on Christmas and Easter and when the Chargers are playing the undefeated New England Patriots. So, but I won't make that joke this morning. I will uh, ask you to direct your attention to the scriptures that will soon be up here on the board. There we go. We're going to be looking at hindrances to a life worth living from Luke chapter 17. And we're going to look at the first 10 verses. Listen, this is God's word. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is God's word. I think to start, I want to quote a profound, deep thinker, Forrest Gump. He gave us his summary of life. Do you remember what it was? He said, life is like a box of chocolates. Why? Because you never know what you're going to get. Okay? I think it's true. It really does sum up life. You don't know what you're going to get in life. You don't know what this week is going to be like for you. You don't know what this month, what 2008 is going to be like for you. And so you want to ask yourself and try to be intentional. What would make life good? What would make this a good week? a good year for you. I think a lot of times, most people would say, well, if circumstances work out right, you know, or if I perform in a way that gets the approval of others, if I'm well-liked by other people, then life is worth living. And we end up giving up control when we look at those kinds of things. And so I want to ask you, what would get you excited about waking up tomorrow morning? Right? Is there something that you might think about that would... Make life worth living for you. What stands in the way of your life being one that's worth living? In our text today, Jesus is actually doing leadership training. Does that sound interesting? You ever wonder what it would have been like you know, for Jesus? What kinds of things did he say to the disciples when they were talking? When Jesus was trying to help them to grow and to become what he was hoping they would become, do you ever wonder what he would have said to them? Well, this text tells us. This text gives us one episode of Jesus training his disciples. 
Jesus knows what's in store for his disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're traveling on this road, and he's preparing them to face what they're going to face because he knows what's going to happen. He's preparing them not just to face Jerusalem, but he's also preparing to hand his ministry to them so that they can build the church and so that they can begin something that will literally change the world. And Jesus knows there are roadblocks and hindrances that are going to make the disciples feel like everything's falling apart. There are things they're going to encounter that are going to make them feel like everything's gone wrong. Okay, And so in light of these incredible goals that Jesus has set out for his disciples, Jesus says, or he basically identifies four hindrances that they're going to face. Okay? He identifies four of the roadblocks that these disciples are going to face and then gives them four perspectives that will radically change how they view the world. And it's going to do the same for us too. These four perspectives, if you can grasp what Jesus tells his disciples, they will change you. They will change how you think about life. They will change your perspective. And they will give you a life that's worth living. They will make you the kind of person that God would use to change your part of the world. And so the four hindrances that we see, you've got your bulletin there. I'll give you the hindrances up front, and then we'll go through them one by one. The hindrances are vengeance, hypocrisy, not enough blessing, and entitlement. Okay, and with each of these hindrances that Jesus identifies, again, we're going to get a perspective that will free us from these things and give us a life that God can use. And so first, vengeance. This is verses 1 and 2. Let me read that again. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It'd be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. These words seem kind of harsh. I mean, especially at first glance. Um, To me, it was kind of confusing because (laughs) I was reading this and thinking, I've caused people to sin before. Did you feel that way when 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 I read this earlier? I mean, have you caused somebody else to sin? Have you pushed somebody's buttons in a way that made them sin? Yikes. I mean, is this talking about, I mean, this is everybody really, isn't it? Does this mean that everybody is going to be cursed this way? Well, I think we need to notice that actually that, and this is one of those times where knowing Greek helps a little bit, but this isn't the normal word for sin, okay, in Greek. This is a different word, and actually it's a word that you'll recognize. It's the word scandalon, okay? It's the word that we get you know, the word scandal from, okay? And so Jesus isn't talking specifically about people that just push someone else's buttons and cause them to sin. Jesus is actually referring to something far worse, Okay, Jesus is referring to people who destroy the faith of others. People who scandalize others. Okay, and the word scandal versus sin, even in our language, has that same distinction, right? And so Jesus is saying that there are people, not just that tempt others to sin, but there are people who will destroy the faith of others. Okay? Now, this will become a little bit clear when we say, well, who is he talking about? But who is Jesus referring to? Who are these people that are going to fall under this curse? Well, it's the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Okay, these are the people that Jesus is talking about. 
this passage, these 10 verses, it's actually the end of a dialogue that Jesus was having with his disciples and with the religious leaders. Okay, it starts actually in chapter 14. And if you read from chapter 14, 15, 16, up until this passage, you see that it's sort of a back and forth. Jesus, you know, sort of comes to center stage, and then the, the religious leaders come center stage, and then the disciples come center stage. You see these interactions. And so what Jesus is doing now is he's addressing his disciples, and he's telling them what is going to happen to the religious leaders. Okay? Now, Bill McCurin, last week, gave a really wonderful explanation of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You know, so I'd encourage you, if you haven't heard the sermon from last week, to pull that out because Jesus, um, or because Bill explains really some of the, the evil of the religious leaders that Jesus was dealing with. But I'm going to summarize. Let me tell you what these folks, what these religious leaders would say to people. Okay, here's some things that they would say. They would say to you, look, you're not good enough. Okay, you need to do more to be accepted by God. Okay, or they'd also say, you're just not the right kind of person. For God to accept. So even if you did all the stuff, we're still not going to let you in. And God won't let you in either. They would say that God cares more about whether or not you wash your hands before you eat than he does whether you're taking care of your family or if you're caring for the poor. And then they'd say, look, Jesus is not from God. Jesus is a trickster. He's a drunk. And his power actually comes from Satan. And anybody who chases after Jesus, who follows Jesus, is at war with God. Okay? These religious leaders were actually causing people to stop following God. God was working in the lives of people, and they were destroying that work. Now, what's interesting to me is that these religious leaders aren't the hindrance. Okay? They're not the hindrance, but it's the disciples' attitude toward them that's the hindrance. Okay? What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, it's really easy to be controlled by vengeance. Right? It's easy for us, especially toward those people who really deserve it. Right? Think about it. If anybody, I mean, Jesus himself is saying, curse be upon them, woe be to them. And yet he's checking us. He's checking us, and he's showing us something that's in our hearts. Right? This is something that's a hindrance to life worth living, because I think if we're honest, we do hate people. Right? There are certain people that we hate. And maybe it's not just false religious people, although they're very worthy of our hatred. Maybe it's self-serving political leaders that we hate, that we just can't stand, that when we hear them, it's almost like, you know, fingernails scraping on a chalkboard. Or maybe it's people at your office. Some of us struggle with people in our family this way, where we just, we hate them. We want them to pay for what they've done. When they're successful, like we seethe inside. We hate that. And some of us even almost pray for their destruction. Do you feel this in your heart for people? I mean, there are people that just bring out this vengeance in us. And what happens to us, what Jesus is telling us is that, look, this controls us. It controls us and it distracts us and it ruins our perspective. It keeps us from doing what God wants us to do. I mean, in one sense, this is like an idol that we bow down to and we pay homage with our time, with our energy. 
And so Jesus addresses it. And his words are designed to give us freedom. Okay? What he says about these people is meant to help us to be freed from being controlled by vengeance. And so what's his perspective? Jesus' perspective is that God will judge them. Okay? So the freeing perspective of Jesus is that God will judge them. And maybe you want to underline God will judge them if you want to get at the idea here. Okay? These people will be judged. God sees them, and so you don't have to worry about them. Okay? Let God handle them. Let God be God. You need to let go. And frankly, if you're concerned about their effect on people, then go rescue the people who are being hurt by them. Okay. Vengeance will control us. It will consume us. And life that's filled with vengeance is not worth living. Jesus needs his disciples. He needs you to not be concerned about their fate, but to focus on building his kingdom. Okay, and then secondly, we have the hindrance of hypocrisy. And this is verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, so watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So again, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples they're going to be judged, so go announce their judgment. Right? He doesn't say, go take delicious glee in telling them what's coming. Instead, he says, watch yourselves. Because he knows this is always the temptation for new leaders. Jesus knows that this is going to be what his disciples will face, right? And we've seen this. I mean, all of history tells us that this happens. Okay, this happens in the church. It happens in politics. It happens in schools. It happens everywhere, right? You have people who are dissatisfied with leadership. The leadership is tyrannical. It's their way or the highway. Nobody likes that kind of leadership, you know, and it doesn't produce good fruit. It doesn't produce, you know, an atmosphere of joy or happiness where you can actually accomplish something worthwhile. And so this group of people that's frustrated, they end up overthrowing that leader. And then it's their way now that's the right way, right? And the reality of the tyrannical leadership hasn't changed. It's just what's now the right way to do things that's changed. You understand what I'm saying? Um, I mean, in the church, this happens. You have people that say, well, you know what? Drinking and smoking and dancing is all wrong and evil. Okay? And so if you do these things, then you're, you're just outcast. You're unclean. You're dirty. You don't really love God. Okay? And then you have a generation of younger people that say, gosh, what's the big deal? You know, I can do these things, and I don't think I'm sinning. And, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this to excess. So I think I'm within the bounds of Scripture. And then they get frustrated because they feel like, oh, you're just being legalists, right? And you're imposing this on us. And so, you know, and there's this struggle and this fight. And sometimes they leave. Sometimes they take over. But at some point, then this younger generation takes charge. And then they run a ministry that basically makes you feel like if you don't drink, then something's wrong with you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so this is, this is the challenge that all new leaders face. Okay? I mean, we see this. I mean, history tells us this over and over again, too. But I guess I just want to bring out that this happens to us in the church, too. And, and frankly, I see this in my own personal life. Right? I feel like sometimes I have the least grace for people who struggle with the sins that I most recently think I conquered. Does that make sense? Right? Okay, so I'm struggling with something. I finally break through, and I feel like I've conquered a sin. 
And then all of a sudden, I'm wondering why everybody else can't get their act together and become clean like me. Right? Do you ever feel that way? Or, I mean, we do this, too, in terms of getting friends with people. This happens at the office a lot also and family and, well, shoot, everywhere. Um, things that we're really good at, that we that, that just come to us naturally, we just wonder why everybody else has such a hard time, about, you know, a hard time with it. I mean, again, this is the kind of, what, what ends up happening, the reason I draw this out is because when we give in to these feelings, we start to exclude people that aren't like us. Okay? We become exclusionary. If you're not like me, then you're not welcome in whatever aspect of life it is. And this is exactly what Jesus doesn't want his leaders to become. Okay? He doesn't want, you know, if the first point was, look, don't hate them, then this point is don't be like them. Right? The religious leaders of Jesus' day were busy going around just drawing lines in the sand and saying, we're on the right side, you're on the wrong. Excluding everybody. And Jesus is saying, look, the temptation will exist also for you. And we need to think about this because if the Pharisees were, or the, and the religious leaders were ruining what God was doing in people's lives, we need to take care that we don't do that same thing. It's possible for us to muddle with what God is doing in someone's life. If someone is beginning their walk and beginning to follow after Jesus or is exploring what Jesus' claims are and what it means to follow him, we need to be careful that we don't just say, oh, well, if you really want to follow Jesus, then you need to do this, 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 and this. Right? Maybe we need to be a little bit more sensitive and find out what is God doing in this person's life and how can I encourage that? Where is God speaking to this person? What areas of their life is God working on? And how can I encourage that rather than think I need to bring my agenda and my perspective to control this person's growth? Okay? We need to be careful not to do that. And I guess I'd ask, you know, well, how do we do that? How do we, how do we keep away from this hindrance of hypocrisy? Well, the perspective that would give us the freedom is to cultivate a heart of loving forgiveness. Okay? So the perspective that frees us from hypocrisy is to cultivate a heart that's full of loving forgiveness. And this is what Jesus says here when he talks about sinning and repenting and forgiveness. Okay? Now, loving forgiveness doesn't mean you don't tell someone when they're wrong. Okay? It's not loving to let the emperor walk around naked. Right? It's not loving to do that. And so, But when your brother sins, the rebuke that comes has as its goal the person's restoration, okay? So when you rebuke, when you come alongside and gently encourage, when you point something out in a brother or a sister's life, the purpose of your conversation is their restoration, right? Because remember, Jesus is the one who was running down the road to embrace people who are wanting to come back. That needs to be our heart. Jesus threw parties for people who wanted to turn their lives around. And so the key to not be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day is to be full of loving forgiveness. Now, okay, what does forgiveness mean? A lot of people have different ideas. They throw out about forgiveness. And so, in fact, it's interesting because one of the things that I hear now more often than not when I tell somebody I'm sorry or I tell somebody or ask them to forgive me, what I hear is more often than not I hear either one of two things, either don't worry about it or no worries. And I'm not going to you know, say that. I mean, I think that gets, that gets close to what Jesus is talking about, but it's not really what it means to forgive somebody. 
To say don't worry about it means, look, I don't want you to worry about it, even if, but it gives me room to hold on to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, look, don't worry about it, but now I've got one on you, and I'm just going to hold it, and if I ever need to bring it out, maybe I will, and I'll be justified because you know you did it, and right? Um, or no worry sometimes makes it sound like, look, it didn't really hurt. Right? And so let me give you a definition of forgiveness that I think helps. Okay, to forgive somebody means that you're saying, I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done. Okay? I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done. Financially, emotionally, relationally, I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done. If someone sins against you and then they tell you they're sorry, you need to forgive them. Even if they keep on doing it. Okay, Jesus says if they sin against you seven times in a day. So I was thinking about that. Because he says it, we just sort of let it sort of like water off a duck's back. Yeah, seven times in a day or whatever. Well, let me, let me sort of draw this out for you a little bit. Say you go into work. You're at the office from 8 to 5. So you have a coworker who at 9 o'clock in the morning insults you. Okay? And then they misinterpret an email of yours at 10 o'clock. Right? And then they stab you in the back at 11. And you go to lunch at, at 12, so you're, you're safe for an hour. And then at 1 o'clock, they take credit for something that you did. At 2 o'clock, they spread a false rumor about you. At 3 o'clock, they tell you they're not finished with the portion of the project that they were responsible for. And then at 4, they make fun of you in a group of people. Can you imagine that? That's, that's seven times in a day. Jesus is saying that if they come to you and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, you're to forgive them. Spouses, right? Parents, think about this. Your spouse belittles you at 6 o'clock in the morning. Then they insult the way you dress at 6.50. Then you're gone for the day, you know. Then you come back, and at 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 o'clock, they sin against you. Jesus is saying, if they come to you and tell you that they're sorry, if they ask for your forgiveness, you are to forgive them. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, I want to make an important qualification. Okay, This is something to write down. Forgiveness granted doesn't mean that trust is restored. Okay? There's a difference between forgiveness and trust. Okay? Forgiveness granted doesn't mean that trust is restored. Okay? You can forgive somebody and say that you're not going to make them pay for what they've done, but it doesn't mean that they have that they now have that same level of trust that they had before they started sinning against you. Okay? I think that if someone sins against you, neither party should act as if nothing happened. Okay? The one who sins shouldn't just make it sound like, oh, okay, I've been forgiven, so life as usual. Right? The one who sins should think, wow, okay, I haven't just sinned once, I've sinned twice, I've sinned seven times in a day. I need to think about this. Right? The one who sins shouldn't should do things to protect themselves against continuing in that process of sin. Okay? And I think it's human and human in the right sense for the person who sinned against to say, you know what? I'm not going to keep enabling you to sin against me this way. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that you don't forgive. 
You don't, you don't extract your pound of flesh from somebody when they sin against you. You don't keep record. You don't bring things up later. You don't, um, you don't pile on and you don't get you know, what I've heard called historical with somebody. You always do this to me and you bring up eight years of history of error in this particular area. Um, and so you need to forgive when someone asks you to forgive them. But trust is something that lags behind forgiveness. Okay, And trust is typically reestablished through words and actions that demonstrate a strong desire to change. Okay, Now, lots more can be said about that, but I think that that puts you at least in the... It gives you the outline for healthy relationships and gets you at what Jesus is, is, is aiming for us to embrace here. Okay, now, there's some of you here that are grudgingly accepting the seven times in a day thing. Right? Some of you are saying, okay, fine, seven times. It really does say this in the text, so I guess I have to do seven. But eight. When the eighth time comes, I'm lowering the hammer. I'm going to get them. Bad news for you this morning. In Matthew, Jesus says, not seven, but 70 times seven. So that's 490. So keep counting. Keep counting. Okay. And... I think you all understand that when your heart is unwilling to forgive, when you're not full of loving forgiveness, it's a huge hindrance to a life worth living, isn't it? There's a huge amount of control that you're giving to someone else. This person who you are unwilling to forgive has control over you, right? And he kind of feeds into that vengeance idea as well. But the question I think that comes is how in the world can we forgive this way? How in the world could you honestly say to that same person seven times in a day, I forgive you, I'm not going to make you pay for this? Well, if you're asking that question, this is exactly what the disciples want to know. Okay, Jesus gives them this word, and then the disciples say in verse 5, the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. You know what they're saying? We can't do that, Jesus. They're saying, we can't forgive this way. We don't have the power to do this. We don't have the ability to do this. And so for the apostles, they think that the answer is, okay, well, we need more faith. Okay, Jesus, you need to give us more faith if you want us to forgive this way. You feel that way this morning? I mean, this gets at this third hindrance. You know, this third hindrance is not enough blessing. Okay? It's the idea that God hasn't given you enough for you to be able to do what he's called you to do. Okay, and I, I, this is a huge struggle, and it's a huge hindrance. Right? What do you know that you should be, but you can't be? What absolutely crushes you about yourself? You know, what are areas that you just want to change, and no matter what you do or how hard you try, you just can't? I mean, do you feel like the temptation is to, in a sense, do what the, the, what the apostles are doing here in verse 5. I mean, is to say, God, you haven't given me enough blessing. You haven't given me enough so that I can conquer this or so that I can deal with this. You haven't given me enough patience to deal with these people. You haven't given me enough, you know, for them. You haven't given me enough faith. Right? The disciples, they think they need to believe more. And this, this reminds me of Internet access. Okay? Think about Internet access. Now, there are lots of different ways to connect to the Internet. If you're a multinational corporation, you have a huge, they call them pipes. I used to sell this stuff. They call these big pipes. And the technical term for it, the biggest one that I know of, is an OC48. 
okay? An OC48 is 48 DS3s, and a DS3 is 45 DSL lines in your home, okay? So you can kind of do the math. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of times faster to the Internet than a dial-up connection, right? So you have these OC48s that are owned by the big, giant companies, you know, and then there's people, you know, many of you probably, you have high-speed Internet access in the home, right? You have cable modem, you have DSL, and then there's people that are still on dial-up, right? And you kind of have to use the phone, and it makes that, you know, where, 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 you've got mail, right? There's people still on dial-up. Okay, well, it seems like what the disciples are saying is, Jesus, okay, wait a sec, we're on dial-up faith here, and what you're asking from us we need high-speed faith, okay? That's basically what they're saying. Jesus, we don't have a strong enough connection to increase our faith. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, wait a minute, no, you don't understand. He says, it's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. Say it another way, it's not how much you believe, but it's who you believe in. It makes all the difference. Jesus says, you just need a connection to me. And even the smallest connection will give you enough strength to do the impossible. That's where Jesus is going. And this is the perspective that frees us. right? So the, the hindrance is not enough blessing. The perspective that frees is being connected to Jesus. Look what Jesus says. In verse 6, he says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Okay, mustard seed, you know, one of the smallest seeds that they had back then. So Jesus is saying, If your faith is this small, okay, this small, if I had a mustard seed in my hand, you couldn't even see it from where you were. If your faith was this small, you could do the impossible. You could take a tree. Now, mulberry tree, these, these trees would grow for 600 years. And they were known for the depth of their root structures. So for 600 years, a tree would be delving into the ground. And its roots would be intertwining and, and meshing into the ground. You know, you try to pull out a, a pretty big weed, it's hard enough to get that out, right? Jesus is saying, if you have a 600-year-old tree and your faith was this small, you could rip that tree up out of the ground and planted in the sea. You know we're going after worship today, right? We're all going to go to Balboa Park, and we're going to see who has faith, right? Did you ever do that when you were, well, maybe when you were younger? Maybe you did it last week. I don't know. Um, I mean, I did this. When I read this at first, um, I thought, wait a minute. And then because there's another passage in Matthew where it says you can move a mountain. So I didn't even want to test God. So I just said, well, hey, here I am in my bedroom. What about the curtains? You know? God, you can move those curtains. I believe that you have enough power just to shake the curtains. Wouldn't be too hard. I close the window first. <clears throat> God, I believe you can do that. Nothing happened. Am I the only one who's tried this before? <laughs> Come on. All right. I guess not. Um, what Je- I mean, Jesus is using, he's, he's using exaggerated language, okay? He's not really saying you could move the tree because that's not what God's doing in the world but what he's saying is that anything that God is doing in the world anything that God wants you to do in the world if your connection to me is this small you can do it 
this is good news because I know for some of us, we feel like we don't have a strong faith. We, feel, we don't feel like we have the faith that we see others seem to have. We feel like we only believe about this much. Do you feel that way? I mean, do you feel like you're kind of struggling just to hang on to Jesus? Do you feel like if the wrong thing happens, you don't know if you'd even continue to believe in him? It's not like Internet access. And the reason is because of who faith connects you to. The reality is the, the good news, the amazing truth of the gospel is that if you believe in Jesus just a little bit, God comes and lives with you. He pours out his spirit into you. He fills you with himself. He doesn't just come to live with you, but he lives in you. Understand that. Even a little bit of faith gets all of Jesus. Okay, Paul says this in Ephesians 1.3. He says that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So that means if you believe just a little bit, God gives you all the blessings. All the blessings. And so how exactly does this work, right? I mean, I think it's encouraging to hear this, but what are you going to do this afternoon? What are you going to do tomorrow when you have something that really rattles your faith? What are you going to do when you are confronted again with that struggle that you have that you just can't seem to conquer? How does this actually work? The thing about forgiveness, right? This, if you're connected just this much to Jesus, you could forgive somebody seven times in a day. So how exactly does that work? Well, I'll tell you. Let's work this out. It works by reminding yourself of who you believe in. Okay, so let me give you an example. You ask yourself, do you believe in Jesus? You think, well, I think I do. Okay, well, do you believe in him perfectly? No, I don't. Well, do you believe in him at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Okay, I believe in him at least a little bit, right? Even if it's really small, but I believe in him a little bit. Okay, what do you believe about Jesus? You ever thought about that? What do you believe about Jesus? Because what you believe about Jesus makes all the difference in the world. For instance, do you believe that he died for your sins? Yes, I believe he died for my sins. Okay. Do you believe that you deserved it when he died for your sins? No. Okay. Do you, have you become perfect since Jesus died for your sins? No. So you've sinned against Jesus after he's forgiven you of your sins? Yes. Have you ever sinned against Jesus seven times in a day? Yes. Seven times in an hour? <laughs> seven times in 15 minutes? You know, we could... Um, does Jesus continue to forgive you even after you continue to sin against him? Yes. Do you deserve that continued repetitious forgiveness from Jesus? No. Now, what are you going to do with the brother or sister who sins against you? When you go through that process of reminding yourself what you believe about Jesus, it causes forgiveness to well up in your heart. Right? You go from saying, well, do I really have to forgive this person again? To... 
how can I not forgive this person? In fact, I, I'm dying to forgive this person, not only because I want them to experience forgiveness, but I also want them to see Jesus in me. I want them to know that just like the way I'm forgiving them, God can forgive them too. Right? When you remember your connection to Jesus, when you remember, even if it's super small, but you remember what Jesus has done and you rehearse that for yourself, it will actually cause you to be able to forgive others, even seven times in a day. And this is how God ultimately changes the world. He changes individual people one by one, fills them with himself so that they can then show the world around them what he's like and what knowing him is like and what being connected to Jesus is like and what kind of strength and power come for those who believe in Jesus. And this is where Jesus is aiming his disciples. He wants them, he wants people who are just filled with him, right? Who know for sure that, look, it's not me. It's Jesus, right? Because that's what gives hope. If there's something special about me that enables me to forgive or to be kind or to be loving or gentle or to take care of the poor, well, then you might not have whatever I have, right? That's pretty discouraging. And it's, But if the only reason I can do these things is because Jesus is in me, then all you need to do is be connected to Jesus and all that Jesus does in me, he can do in you. I mean, that's the good news. That's what Jesus wants the disciples to get. That's how they can become not exclusionary, but inclusive. Right? That's the key to bringing, to opening your arms wide and embracing the city. Embracing people that you're not comfortable with, who are different from you, because you want to encourage what God is doing in their life. And the only way you'll have strength to do that is if you're connected to Christ, because He loves the city. He loves the people. And if his love is in you, and then that love comes out. Okay, well, Jesus ends this training session by bringing up, I think, the most dangerous roadblock for the disciples that they're going to have to face. Okay, and that's verses 7 through 10. And it's this parable. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come, sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get, re- get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Well, so you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. Now, what's this getting at? Well, the hindrance that comes out here that Jesus is identifying, it's the attitude of entitlement. Okay, so the fourth hindrance is entitlement. And Jesus knows if he doesn't root this out of the disciples, the entire mission will fail. The church will not succeed. Okay, now what's entitlement? Entitlement's the attitude that, well, God owes you, the world owes you, or that God was pretty smart when he made you. Um, And, yeah, I can tell you stories about this sometime, about my own life. Um, entitlement is yeah something God is working on me with and to have an entitlement spirit is it's, it's really a miserable life unless unless you get everything you want okay if you get everything you want then being enti- having that entitlement attitude there's, there's no issues with it right because you get everything that you think you deserve and 
if you're in that situation, you want to be careful that maybe you're in Luke 16, right? And, and again, listen to the sermon that Bill preached last week about those people who get everything that they want in life. Um, and so Jesus is trying, he knows he needs to weed this out. Jesus is in the last month of his ministry, okay? This is part of this traveling story where Jesus is moving from northern Israel down to southern Israel. He's going to Jerusalem to make his final, to confront um, the religious leaders of his day. He knows what's in front of them. And he's told his disciples, look, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, arrested. I'm going to be beaten and scourged. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. Jesus has told his disciples that. Now, while Jesus is telling them that, the disciples are busy arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Right? They're arguing over, okay, so when we get to Jerusalem and Jesus gets his glorious throne, I want to sit on his right hand. No, 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 no. You can't. I mean, they're fighting over who's going to get to sit next to Jesus when he enters his throne. Right? When he comes into Jerusalem. And so Jesus' perspective, here's the perspective that frees. I mean, in a sense, these disciples feel like, look, we followed him for three years. We put in our dues. You know, we want to get what's coming to us. And our big payoff is in Jerusalem. When Jesus is heralded and made king, we're finally going to get to tell the world, ha, (laughs) we told you so, right? We can finally stand up to the religious leaders and really just thumb our noses at them. And so Jesus' perspective on this, here's the perspective that frees you from being entitled. There's really kind of two things here. It's that remember you are servants and the work's not done. Okay, that's the point of this parable. Remember you're a servant and the work's not done. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, remember, I've called you to be a servant of this world. I've called you to spend your life serving it. And there's still lots of work to do. There is still work yet to be done. There is a set of evening chores that's to be done. Okay, The disciples are like the servant who's coming in from the field at the end of the day. And instead of them expecting glory in Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, look, there's evening work to be done. There's still more work yet ahead. Does that make sense? Jerusalem is not going to be a bed of roses for us. It's not going to be a party. It's going to be worse than anything you've ever imagined. And so what Jesus is doing, I mean, can you imagine what it was like for the disciples? Think about this. I mean, this was their, all their hope was set on this entrance of Jesus finally coming and doing what God said he was going to do, which was take on his throne and rule the world. To go walking into Jerusalem and then to watch everything just sort of erupt and and fall apart in a week. You go from Jesus being heralded by the crowds to him being dead in a tomb. Six days, five days. Can you imagine the disappointment? I mean, I think actually, well, I think a lot of you can. I I know a lot of you are feeling like life is falling apart. You're feeling that, that suffering that things weren't supposed to turn out this way. You're feeling like, where is God and why did things go wrong and how did they go wrong and what am I supposed to do? Well, for Jesus' disciples, he plants these words in their hearts, hoping that they will bear fruit when things fall apart. And Jesus' message to them is, look, 
let me remind you that you're a servant of the king. Don't forget. Don't forget that you're called to be a servant. And at this stage in the game, the servant is called to suffer for the pain of the world. Jesus was committed to going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Jesus was committed to going into the pain, to saying yes to the pain so that he could bring God's love, God's mercy, God's grace to bear on the pain and turn the tide. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look, that's your calling too right now. I'm calling you to take the baton and go find the pain that's in the world and bring my love and my grace and my good news. And that's the baton that he hands to us. It's the same call for us. If you're in the pain now, or if you're not yet, Jesus is saying, look, I want my people to go into the pain of the world and to bring into that space, into that dark place, the light of God's love, the light of God's grace, and with a spirit that says, that doesn't say, look, I don't deserve this, but a spirit that says, look, I'm going to embrace this because if I, I know if I bring God's presence into here, it will turn the tide. It will turn the tide. And what's glorious about this is that Jesus is explaining here what normal people would do with their servants. Okay, he's saying, look, there's work, you know, normal people would say, look, there's still work to be done. Get at it. I'm not going to give you a break until the work's all finished. That's not how Jesus treats his servants. That's not how Jesus treats us. In fact, we see it every single week on Sundays. We get to come and get a break. Every Sunday, Jesus calls us into his presence. And he says, please take a load off. Let me cleanse you. Let me wash your feet. Let me cleanse your hearts. And let me re-strengthen you. When we, when we do the Lord's Supper, I mean, we get this in a most amazing picture. Jesus says, look, let me serve you. Let me feed you so that you can go another week. I mean, the, 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 the perspective is that there's still work to be done, but the good news this morning is that you're not doing it alone. And you don't have to go more than six days from today before you get another chance to refresh. This is the Savior who comes after us, who serves you so that he can give you his strength, so that you can have his strength to keep going, to keep going into the pain, to keep going into the world so that we can turn the tide. Let's pray. Father, we need this strength. We need you to continue to fill us with Jesus. Thank you that just a little bit of faith makes all the difference. Thank you that a little bit of faith fills us with all of Jesus. Keep him close to us. Keep us close to him so that we can be transformed and be who Jesus is so that we might be your vessels, your tools to bring your love, your grace, and your mercy into our world. We pray this for your sake in Jesus' name.